chapter 1, if you go to the book of Psalms, head to the right, and you will eventually hit Isaiah. Isaiah's very name means God saves. And as we look at this passage, you'll see that reflected here, uh, certainly in this passage and in God's disposition towards sinners. I have much good news uh, to share with you from Isaiah 1. So we'll begin in verse 10, and I'll read to verse 20 of Isaiah 1. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I have had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who has required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They have become a burden to me. I am weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Wash yourselves. Make yourselves clean. Remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. Bring justice to the fatherless. Plead the widow's cause. Come now. Let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. Let's pray together. Lord, we pray your spirit would move among us, that we might be led as you promised in the truth, that the truth would set us free, that we together as your people might experience the wonder of your love. We pray this sermon would be up to that task. So I ask for your help, that all of us as we listen and grow together would experience the beauty of the gospel. This morning we pray in Christ's name. Amen. You may be seated. Story is told, and it might be from my, my childhood or your childhood, familiar story of a parent instructing a child to sit down, and said child refuses to sit down. Parent instructs the child again to sit down. Child refuses. Parent, ever so gently, puts hands on child's shoulders, pushes child down into seat, and says, there, sit down. Child responds, I might be sitting down on the outside, but I'm standing up on the inside. That kind of rebelliousness is something that Israel struggled with. And the, rebellious, the rebellion takes on a form here in this second 
uh, part of chapter 1, namely a worship that is full of hypocrisy, vain offerings there in verse 13. The attitude of worship does not fit the belief system. And wherever that happens, where our belief and our behavior don't line up, there is hypocrisy. This rebellion is first talked about, if you look in verse 2, and I'll just rehearse what we've covered a little bit last week. In verse 2, you see this, for uh, children I have reared and brought up, but they have what? Rebelled against me. And we looked at the form of rebellion there was a spiritual forgetfulness. We might call it even spiritual dementia, that Israel has forgotten who God is. That's in verse 3. The ox knows its owner, the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. So the rebelliousness takes this form of spiritual forgetfulness, but it also takes this form, the rebellion does, of going through the motions in worship and not wholly engaging the heart in worship. Well, sometimes we struggle with that, don't we? We may come to worship, but our heart might not be in it. We might be going through the motions. We might be hypocritical. We might not have truth, sincerity, authenticity, and honesty when we come to worship. Well, what's the way back? How do we see that fixed? How does the gospel address our hypocrisy or our going through the motions as ancient Israel did? How does that get addressed? through the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. That's our topic this morning. And the first thing I want to show you is this problem, this issue of needing to return to true worship. Needing to return to true worship. Notice this in verse 10. God calls them, you rulers of Sodom, you people of Gomorrah. That is not good, is it? Now notice this, they are still his children. Back to verse 2. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. And this conflictual situation is something maybe you experience as a parent if you have a child who's a prodigal or they've rejected the faith that you brought them up with. You love them, but they are still rulers of Sodom, people of Gomorrah. The call here is for Israel to return to true worship. They're going through the motions. Look at verse 11. What to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beasts. In other words, Israel is following through on the sacrificial system. That's given to us in detail in Leviticus. Now, the purpose of the sacrificial system was not to save people, the practices of the sacrificial system was meant to point to the ultimate sacrifice, Jesus Christ. And once Christ came, the ceremonial law was done away with because it was fulfilled in the ultimate sacrifice of the Savior on the cross. So what is Israel doing here? They're conforming to the letter of the law, but their heart isn't in it. They're going through the motions here, and while they think might be fooling themselves, and while they might be fooling others around them, God knows the truth, doesn't he? God knows where our hearts 
are. We cannot fool God. And so God has picked up on this dynamic that they are checking the box, so to speak. Verse 12, when you come to appear before me, who has required this trampling on my courts? It's as if they are trampling the temple courts by coming to God with insincere hearts, without truth. There is blood on their hands. That's at the end of verse 15. But they are coming and they are following through, going through the motions of worship. Not only are they going through the motions of worship, and these are called, verse 13, vain offerings. Why are they vain? Their heart isn't in them. They have, verse 13, new moon and Sabbath, the calling of convocations. Verse 14, your new moons and your appointed... Notice here, it's your new moons. This is not a command from God. This is something that they're inventing. And most likely, this is taking a shot at how Israel, set apart to be God's people, was meant to influence the nations around them. And the sacrificial system was meant to be a communication of their relationship with God, pointing to the Savior, the Messiah who would come. But what have they done? They've adopted the idolatrous ways of the nations around them. And by so doing, they are disobeying God. They're disobeying God because they're inventing their way of worship, and uh, this is called syncretism, combining idolatrous ways of worship along with practices that God has commanded and putting them together in an expression of worship that is insincere, not based on the truth, not truly worshipful, authentic, and certainly not commanded by God. So as a result, look at verse 15. When you spread out your hands, in other words, when you come to God in worship with an insincere heart, when the belief and the behavior are not lined up, what's the result? Verse 15, I will hide my eyes from you. Even though you make many prayers, I will not listen. God is not responsive to this form of worship that is invented by people or going through the motions of what worship is and not having our heart be part of it. Uh, right now, I'm listening to a book, uh, audio book. So notice I said listening. I'm not reading it. I'm listening to it. And uh, it's a long book. It's on, it catalogs all the resistance movements in Europe during World War II. So from Italy to the Balkans to the Netherlands to France. And it is very, very detailed. It's, it's a 46-hour listen. War and Peace is like 60 hours. So this is close to that. Uh, the book is too heavy for me to read, so I'm listening to it. And as I'm listening, I notice something, and, and this might be true of you if you listen to podcasts or you listen to sermons. You're listening along, and then all of a sudden, if, if the detail becomes too great, as it does in the case of this book, I notice I'm not listening anymore. And I have to go back. I have to rewind and sort of catch the thread again. I'll be listening along, and then 
Five minutes later, I realize, oh, I haven't been listening for the last five minutes. And I have to go back. There's something about us that's distractible. And it's okay to have to go back. And we go back, we hit the little rewind button on our phone, we go back, we recapture, we find again the thread, and then we move forward. We have to go back, in other words, to go forward. And I think it's that way in worship as well. We have to go back, to go back to the cross, to go back to God's mercy in his providence, that our hearts might be captured yet again with the wonder and beauty of the gospel and all that he's done for us. You know, when we come to worship, and every now and then I, I hear these words, it's been a while, so that's a compliment to you, it's been a while since I heard this, but people will say, oh, I like to, I like to come to the nine o'clock service, so you guys are off the hook, I like to come to the nine o'clock service so I can get it over with. Or someone will say, oh yeah, I like, to, I like to worship early so I can check that off. And then I can go about my day. See, I told you you get off on this one. You, you're in the clear. But that kind of attitude mirrors Israel's problem here. When worship is just something we check off, when worship is something that we go through the motions of, when worship is all about the obligation, mm, I'm supposed to be here, our heart isn't in it. And that's what God seeks here from his people, a heart aligned to the belief expressing wonderful worship to God. The best worship is a sincere worship. In other words, it engages our heart and where we're at. And even, I will tell you this, sometimes the best prayer on Sunday morning is, God, I don't feel like it. My heart isn't in it. Will you fix that? Will you fix that? And we need to be able to honestly pray that way. Something that we do in worship that I hope is helpful to you uh, in this way to ensure that our, our heart is in it and that we have time to sort of catch the thread, to kind of rewind right here, preparing our hearts for worship. And we have that time in our worship service that we could all hit the rewind and we could all remember why we are here. That corporate public worship in a local church is about engaging our hearts and not just checking off a box, not just doing what we're supposed to do. You see, it's a movement from I have to do that to I get to do that. To understanding that this is being together on a Sunday morning is an expression of God's grace, mercy, and love for us that we together would be engaged in worship and that you would have time. You know, I understand, especially if you have a young family, that it's like a Lewis and Clark expedition to come to church. And it is so full of chaos that by the time you get to your seat, we understand life happens. By the time you get to your seat, you just need 
a moment to catch your breath and to engage and to remember why you're here. So we give that to you, preparing our hearts for worship. Use that time to say, I am not just here bodily. Lord, help my heart to be in this today, to make worship a spiritually transformative act that we engage in corporately together. We have a fail-safe because we know the best-laid plans fail because we make them. And that's another time to prepare our hearts before we come to the table. And we do that so that you can think through briefly the application of the sermon and how God is inviting you to experience His goodness and His grace here at the table. So two times to prepare our heart, to shake us loose from this attitude. Oh, I just, I got to get that over with. I got to check that box to make sure and check that our hearts are engaged, that we would not fall victim to what the, to the mess ancient Israel was in. So returning to worship. Then part of the way back to returning to worship and having this authenticity, this sincerity in worship and understanding it's more than just checking a box. This is where life is found. Part of that is in repentance. And that's in verses 16 and 17. And I want you to see verses 16, 17, and 18. This is the gospel according to Isaiah. Sometimes we hear people say, oh, the God of the Old Testament, and you're certainly going to see some judgment here in Isaiah. Sometimes we hear people say, God is a God of judgment in the Old Testament and a God of grace in the New Testament. If you have ever said that or heard that, that's Marcion, the first recorded heretic, A.D. 125. That's what he believed. That's the lie he spread. Now, if you look in verse 16 and 17, you see God is a God of grace in the Old Testament, and He is a God of judgment, and He is a God of grace in the New Testament, and He is a God of judgment when He returns. But look at this invitation here in verse 16. Wash yourselves. Who's He saying this to Go back to verse 10. The rulers of Sodom, the people of Gomorrah. Yes, he's saying wash yourselves. But they're also his children. Verse 2, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Repentance is a turning away from sin to God, and it is also availing ourselves of the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit that we would live differently, that we would endeavor not to fall into that sin again, that he would change us, transform us, and sanctify us, that our life would look more like Jesus. Wash yourselves, make yourselves clean. That's part of repentance. And the other side of repentance is there in verse 16, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes. Cease to do evil. True repentance involves this turning away from sin and this endeavoring not to fall into it again, to stop doing evil. Verse 17 places together a lot of application here. Learn to do good. Seek justice. Correct oppression. 
Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Learning to do good in some ways addresses part of their problem. Do you remember that's in verse 5? The whole head is sick, the whole heart is faint. They need to learn to do good. This places them on humble ground where they can grow and learn from God how to do good. And part of that means to seek justice and to correct oppression. True biblical justice is this idea that God rules and He reigns. And when we together as Christians help those who are oppressed, when we assist those who have experienced injustice, what we are doing is we are pointing towards the kingdom of God, which Christ inaugurates, and he will return in all its fullness to establish his true and just rule and reign here on this earth. And so seeking justice is the application of true and good worship, connecting our life with the rule and the reign of God, helping those who are oppressed because we have been helped by God. We were oppressed by sin, and He has delivered us. We cannot help ourselves. He's delivered us through Christ. And then look at this in the ancient world. Bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. In the ancient world, the widow and the orphan had no means of economic gain. And so they needed the mercy and help of others in order to be taken care of. And likewise, we have received from God mercy, compassion, and love, even though we didn't deserve it. And so we pass that along to those around us and in our community who are defenseless and vulnerable as a way to seek and to see God's kingdom come here on earth. And so repentance is the way, the way back, the way to this authentic worship, the way to embrace and to see God make our belief system and our behavior align to cure us of our hypocrisy. Now, one way to understand this, kind of a classic example, and the husbands are, are the... Uh, Bad guys here, so get ready. Because I'm going to tell you this story, and the wife would never do this. But husbands, sometimes we do nice things for our wife, and what we might do, we might buy some flowers if she enjoys that, or we might make dinner, or we wash her car, or put gas in the car. And just help me understand, what would it be like for you in that moment if you've done this nice thing for your wife, sorry to add men to your to-do list, but you do this nice thing for your wife, and she says, wow, you know, she's sitting in her clean car, and, and you broke the shop vac because the car hadn't been vacuumed in years, and you saw things you don't want to talk about. Uh, while you were vacuuming the car, and she's sitting in that clean car, and it's full of gas, and, and she says, thank you for doing this. Men, what would happen if you, if you said, it's whatever. I'm supposed to do things like that. It's my obligation to you. How 
would that go over? Not well. When we just operate out of duty or we just operate out of obligation or I'm supposed to do this, if in other words we are going through the motions but our heart isn't in it, that's Israel's problem here. If we read between the verses, so to speak, their real underlying problem is they don't love God. They've lost their true love. And that true love is what moves us to not say it's whatever, to not say I'm supposed to do that. That love motivates us to move from duty to delight. It's not I have to come to church. It's I get to because of all that God has done for me in Christ, because of his generosity towards me in Christ. I get to go and worship. Let me ask you an important Profound question, and do not respond and embarrass all of us uh, to this question. Do you really want to be here today? Do you really want to be here today? And the answer to that question is checking the dipsticks, so to speak, on your soul and where you're at with the Lord. The greater our grasp of the gospel and what he has done for us in Christ, the more that is the leverage to move us off of duty and obligation. Are we obligated to worship the, the heavenly uh, king of the universe who created us and saved us? I will tell you, absolutely we are obligated. And absolutely there will be judgment for those who refuse to. But the extra here is in a grasp of the gospel that moves us to understand that with God we get that which we do not deserve. With God we are delivered from oppression. With God, instead of getting what we deserve, he gives us everything that we couldn't earn and that which we do not deserve. And even though in our life, in some ways, we are the rulers of Sodom, the people of Gomorrah, by his grace, were his children. His children. And that moves us to want to be here, to want to be in a local church on a Sunday morning, worshiping the God who did all of that for you. So it is our grasp of the gospel which moves us to engage with God, not just out of duty and obligation, but because we want to. And if our desire doesn't match up with our belief, we got to go back to the belief. we got to rewind. we got to engage again. We've got to prepare our hearts that our hearts would be right before him. And so that's the way back is repentance. And certainly David knew something about this repentance in Psalm 51, a penitential psalm after he's confronted by Nathan the prophet because of his sin with Bathsheba. David writes in Psalm 51, a similar dynamic here. He does not want to just go through the motions. Psalm 51, 16 and 17, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not 
Be pleased with the burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. Oh God, you will not despise. Hosea 6.6 also has this element. For I desire steadfast love and not sacrifice the knowledge of God rather than burnt offerings. You cannot fool God. You cannot fool God. Get real and honest with Him, especially when you're preparing your hearts right before we worship, that your belief and your behavior line up and that your love for God, your worship is an overflow of the love that you have for God. One more point to make this morning. So we're talking about returning to true worship, partly through repentance, and then reasoning together with God. Again, we're in the gospel of Isaiah here, and that's in verses 16, 17, and look at verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. It is as if ancient Israel and you and I are a child in the checkout line, and we are throwing a fit that is going to make the Bernie Star news. It's going to be on Bernie Concerned Citizens Facebook group. And we're throwing a fit because we want something in the checkout aisle and the parent isn't giving it to us. No, we do not negotiate with terrorists. Come now, let us reason together. Do you see this is a gracious invitation? The God of the universe does not have to talk with sinners. And what does he say to his children? Verse uh, chapter 1, verse 2. What does he say to his children? Come here. Let's talk this through. Let's discuss. Let's arrive at a conclusion. And not only is this a gracious invitation we do not deserve, come now, let us reason together. The God of this universe talking with the rulers of Sodom, the people of Gomorrah, he gives an incentive. It's in verse 18. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall be like wool. Who wouldn't want that? A verse that prefigures the atonement of Christ and his covering over of all our sin. There we are throwing a fit in the checkout aisle. And who, what does our Heavenly Father do? Come now. Let's reason together. There we are in, in the midst of our sin, in the midst of our addiction, in a distant country like the prodigal eating the pig's slop. And what does God do? Come now. Let us reason together. Let's talk. Let's get your sins forgiven. And he purifies us. How can we not respond to such a gracious invitation from the God of this universe, who is, verse 4, the Holy One of Israel. Who are we? The rulers of Sodom, the people of Gomorrah. And yet, in Christ, we are children that God has reared, even in the midst of our rebellion. And so this is an astounding and incredibly rich and marvelous invitation that God Almighty extends to us. It is scandalous. And if we were in God's position, we would never talk that way. But God talks that way and expresses love to us. This is redemption. 
instead of casting us out, which is what we deserve because we've gone through the motions, because we've rebelled against him in that way. He doesn't cast us out. He says, come, let us reason together. Verse 19, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat the good of the land. Here is a promise that's given to them and a warning in verse 20, that if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. In other words, the sword will devour you and there will be nothing left to bury. God's judgment will come for those who refuse this wonderful, gracious invitation. What more do we need? Come now, let us reason together. What more reason do you need? Instead of casting us out, God is willing to hold back his judgment in the sword that we again would embrace how wonderful it is to be his children. And the application for us here is clear. If God, who is completely other than we are, would reason together with people who are as different as we are from him, we being sinners, God being holy, if he can reason together with us, Maybe we can reach across the aisle. Maybe we can reason together with those we disagree with. If God is that generous to invite sinners to reason together, certainly blessed are the peacemakers. That we would mirror in the world around us this wonderful grace that makes a place for repentance and says, come now, let us reason together that we would find love and authentic, true worship and that our behavior and our beliefs would be aligned as the cure for our hypocrisy. Let's pray together. Oh Lord, how we thank you for this gracious invitation. Would we see it again? Would we take you up on this invitation? that we would know your grace and your mercy to save and your steadfast love, which we cannot earn and do not deserve. Oh, Lord, thank you for your mercy that you invite us to come back. There are some here who need to come back from the distant country. I pray that would happen. There are some of, some of us who are, truth be told, just checking a box today. Help us with that. Put our hearts in the right place and accomplish that through your love, your mercy, and your grace, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.